Welcome to Healing Black Futures, a podcast envisioning Black liberation and healing through economic justice. This podcast is brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com. I am your host, Asia Dorsey. Episode 2, Reparations, Afrofuturism, and Housing Justice. Housing has a connection to every sphere of life opportunity. I'm not just talking about the structure or the, the building. We're talking about the land it sits on and everything around it that creates a community or creates a sense of home is what's at risk for people. And so when we're talking about Black people being able to access healthy futures, we have to talk about housing. Housing justice is an important element of the movement for reparations. Given this country's history of housing discrimination, including redlining, credit and appraisal fraud, blockbusting, and many other discriminatory practices, repairing what's broken requires both an understanding of current housing policy as well as an Afrofuturistic vision of what's possible. Our guest today is Rashida Phillips. Rashida is the Director of Housing at PolicyLink, a national research and action institute advancing racial and economic equity. She leads their national advocacy effort to support the growing tenants' rights, housing, and land use movements. Rashida collaborates with grassroots partners, movement leaders, industry, and government to envision an equitable future and housing for all. Rashida is also an interdisciplinary Afrofuturist and artist and cultural producer at Black Quantum Futurism. Welcome, Rashida. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's I'm excited to talk to you. Yes, you are uh, one of the the thought leaders of the Afrofuturism movement. You've published countless articles and books. You work and create at the intersection of Afrofuturism and housing policy. Can you briefly explore for us how these two worlds intersect? So in 2011, I started in Philly a event called the Afrofuturist Affair, which was really a way for me to try to connect this idea of Afrofuturism to the work I was doing as a housing advocate, as an attorney, working with low-income communities, particularly Black communities who were facing displacement, facing loss of benefits, all of these things, but who did not have this opportunity because they were so crunched into this space of, you know, urgency and crisis were being locked out of the future. And so just thinking about what this idea of Afrofuturism could bring and could mean to the folks I was connecting with through my work as an advocate was really important. And so that's what the Afrofuturist Affair was about. It was about creating that space, but also for me as a creator to create a community and to be part of a community of folks who were thinking about these ideas and talking very explicitly using this explicit kind of language, this explicit imagery, terminology around Afrofuturism and how we could start to apply that in the world of policy, in the world of housing, and start to really shift the conversation from one that is like 60 years old in terms of like what we need to do to change access to housing and access to the future. And so for me, the idea that if we're talking about the future and we're putting this prefix Afro on it, that changes the future, that modifies Hmm. our visions and our access to the future. And so I really 
started digging in deep on this dimension of the future of time when it came to Afrofuturism. And so Black quantum futurism was really born out of that. It was really born out of deconstructing this idea of the future, deconstructing this idea of time, understanding the history of time, understanding it as a construct that has harmed in the same way that this construct of space has been used to harm and oppress. And then also building the tools and technologies and solutions that will allow us to access the future or access our past or totally shift those dimensions of time in a way that serves us. I want to circle back to what you said about adding the word Afro to conversations about futurism was something that gave Black folks access to the imagination space as something liberatory. And I also, in, in this conversation, because you're, you're doing something that's really unique and cognitively complex, you are bridging sort of these deficits in imagination with actual real and tactile policy work and policy change. You're creating this like brand new archetype of really how to be in the world and how to bridge your sort of artistic creative self with this like hard sort of, we're talking about policy and we're talking about legislation. We're talking about the law. And so I just wanted to sort of really name sort of what you're up to and how impactful of even just your way of being recreates our imagination about what's possible in social change work. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. You know, (laughs) I appreciate that. So to prepare for this interview, I asked you to share an article that was on your spirit. And something that we like to do in this podcast is we like to explore different ways of being with text. And so I would like to read a little bit of Sophie House and Crystal Okorafor's Under One Roof. It's their 2020 article. And I want to read this in order to bring us into the current state of Black housing. And I would love for you to expand on this piece. But really, what I'm curious about is how it lands somatically in your body. So I'm going to start the reading now. They write, in the 1960s, federal housing policy shifted. The civil rights movement broke down many of the formal mechanisms excluding Black households from home ownership opportunities. But what replaced them was a system Kianga Yamada Taylor has termed predatory inclusion built on exploitation and extraction through financial products like contract for deed agreements and subprime loans. Predatory inclusion builds on the logic of 19th century land serenity and 20th century racial planning, but rather than withholding superior housing placements, it imposes inferior ones for corporate gain. Housing injustice continues in the neoliberal area as de facto market-driven strictures replace de jure government-designed ones, yet yield the same racist results. Black families now comprise 45% of public housing residents, vulnerable to both the undignified conditions of disinvested sites and potential displacement from privatized, refinanced ones. How... Did hearing that land for you? And is there any other context you would like to give to what the fight for housing rights looks like now versus what people 
traditionally think about it? I would say the way that landed on me is in the form of anxiety. I tend to feel anxiety like in my stomach area. So just feeling that like anxious, like fear of the future, this continuation of the past into the future. And so just thinking of this unending circle, this, this like negative cycle, this cyclical nature of housing exclusion, that's what it kind of brings up for me. And there's a lot of context that's in that article, but in terms of how it connects to the present, what that article really does that is in some ways unique in terms of how it's framed is that it's framing housing, the housing crisis as an abolition crisis, right? As something that squarely fits within the framework of abolition in terms of how we need to address and tackle it. And that's not something that we are used to thinking, you know, not a way that we're used to thinking about housing, but it's absolutely quite like Afrofuturism, right? Like when I first heard it, abolition and housing makes so much sense, right? Because of that history that you previewed in that brief paragraph of how it's absolutely what we see as housing today and and who's excluded from it ties directly back to enslavement, ties directly back to indigenous land exclusion and being evicted from their lands, right? It all ties back and it's, it's a very thorough line, very clear line. And often when we're talking about things like redlining or Jim Crow laws, right? We're talking about it as if it's passed, as if it's something that happened. And again, if we're talking about it in a very linear progressive sense, we're cutting the past off from the present, from the future, and we're putting them in these neat little boxes. But when we look at it in this sort of more expansive way and with a, a more expansive lens of Afrofuturism and abolition, we can tie it in the same conversation back to slavery, back to, you know, the, the very first, you know, forms of land and housing exclusion that existed when this country was colonized. Yeah, no. Thinking about sort of this housing crisis as cyclical and as already always happening. You talked about the anxiety and the continuation of these precedences that were set forth during slavery and that they just... It's just a cycle that continues. I want to more explicitly link the intersection between Black housing and Afrofuturism. I really want you to explore that more deeply to really kind of wrap our our minds around how these two work together. Just as a baseline, if we're talking about access to the future, which we often take for granted as we're all moving at the same rate and pace and we're going to enter the future at the same time, it's almost like ubiquitous, right? When we're talking about the future or time, it's like one of the most utilized words in our, in our language. But again, we often are not thinking about, which I think Afrofuturism gives us this opportunity who makes it into the future and the very quite literal ways that black people and other people of color, other marginalized people of color are cut off from that future. And so when we're talking about, right, we're not just talking about this in the abstract, we're talking about this in a ways that we're murdered, you know, at higher rate, just murdered in the streets by cops, um, where uh, the ways in which being displaced and gentrified from our communities causes death. When people are being evicted, they die. Their health deteriorates. They're not able to access, 
you know, when someone's evicted, typically they're going to housing that's not better than what they came from. It's worse than what they came from because now they have an eviction record that, you know, is going to exclude them from all kinds of housing except the worst of the worst. So when we're talking about housing, right, and the pandemic has given people the opportunity to finally acknowledge that housing is the foundation for our health. It's the foundation for everything, right? Something that advocates have been saying forever, but you know, that now people realize, right, when they have to shelter in place and shelter at home, like you need a home to do that. Otherwise, right, you're, you're exposed to this deadly virus that's going to kill you. And so when we're talking about housing as the foundation for literally everything, you cannot have, you know, access to a job in the same way. Your kids, you know, in terms of education, can't access the same kinds of opportunities if you're being evicted every couple months or being pushed out, et cetera, right? It just goes on and on. And so it housing has a connection to every sphere of life opportunity that we can think of and is the foundation and the basis and not just housing itself, right? I'm not just talking about the structure or the, the building. We're talking about the land it sits on and everything around it that creates a community or creates a sense of home is what's at risk for people. And so when we're talking about Black people being able to access healthy futures, we have to talk about housing. It's, it's almost impossible for most people to be able to access consistently stable, healthy, thriving futures and communities without having stable housing. And so that's how it connects. And, and when we think about, again, just the, you know, the history and the nature of Black people being locked out of how, you know, literally enslaved and then forevermore, you know, supposedly liberated, right, but not being able to access any of the facets of liberation or freedom that, you know, white people have access to or created or invented as contrast to what makes us human. Housing is, is, is it. And so that's how housing and Afrofuturism connects. And so for me, very intentional about how we build Afrofuturist tools that actually open up access to the future, we have to t- relate it to and bring it back to housing in some way and land in some way. I'm sitting with the way that you brought us back to the realities of COVID and the centrality of home, especially in the face of pandemic. I'm thinking about your highlighting the impact of an eviction on and how that like follows and and carries forth the same sort of a downward spiral of wellness. And and you specifically linked Black wellness to Black housing in a way that was just so visceral. And I really want to, to thank you for creating those images and helping us understand the way that housing is foundational. And there's so much more that you shared. I want to move back to this conversation of, of displacement. And this question is a little bit complex, but it's how is time physicalized through the process of displacement? Yeah. So in so many ways, I think some of which I just named in terms of like how when folks are displaced, like literally their lives are cut shorter. Tons of studies have been done around this, but in, for example, a place like Philadelphia, your zip code determines your, how long you live. There are parts of the city where People live in worse housing where they're exposed to lead poisoning, exposed to mold, all kinds of things that cut their lives short. And so that's a very physical thing, right? When you're literally dying or or living a shorter life because of where you live in the city. 
And, you know, for me, that's such a profound thing when it comes to Black people, right? Because of how we age as well, right? And this idea that Black doesn't crack. And like, when it comes to the physical, right, we can look young, but we age quicker. We age in different ways because of systemic oppression. And so both that we age quicker in terms of our bodies, even though we, we don't look like it because we carry more stress and we carry more, you know, all of these things that systemic oppression does to us. And then we also die younger. So just these ways that our age and our time is accelerated, you know, that's a very physical sort of thing and way that time kind of sits with us. And then, you know, our generations, how our generations are cut off or cut down, cut shorter, the ways that not only going forward, looking forward, right, we're cut off or cut down because we die because of systemic oppression in, in our housing situations. But then looking backwards, right, we also don't have access to our past in the same ways. I lament all the time about how um, for my family, because I don't have access to historic records or stories and because people in my family have died young, you know, at young ages, I don't have access to family history in the same ways. I can't go back further than like my great grandmother. And I have to really, you know, and this is why Afrofuturism is important because it allows for speculation, right? It allows us to open up that space of the past where we've been cut off or where it's been erased. It allows us to recover that erasure. And so the ways were cut off both forward and backward, you know, cut, cut off or cut down. And so, you know, again, it's like I said, how do we make it into the future or how do we connect with our past without shelter and without foundation? How can we make or keep memory without a place to hold or deposit that memory in some ways? You know, our bodies obviously is, is really <laughs> important for that as well, but also, you know, the body shouldn't have to hold everything. So the house and the home, right, is also a place to hold external pieces of ourselves or externalize our memories. And so also just this idea of like nostalgia as well. The word nostalgia itself is very connected to home. The word derives from sickness of home. And it's also a word that was applied to folks who were enslaved, used to describe them, you know, when they were torn away from from their homes. And so this idea of nostalgia and how it gets physicalized, the sickness of home that we carry, that again, is just present in so many ways and, and gets physicalized in, in terms of our health and, and these other conditions that disproportionately impact our communities. I, I teared up quite a few times in your sharing, especially when you said we shouldn't have to hold, the body shouldn't have to hold everything. And, uh, it was from studying with you for the first time that I really got the importance and the real impact of enslavement on and time and all of these things. It was just this idea that like living in inferior housing and all of these things literally takes our life away. And so there is a way in which our the construct of the social relationship between enslaved Africans and enslavers literally takes back our life force. And, and so, yeah, thank you so much for, for sharing in that way and grounding this conversation of housing into the body. That was just really profound for me to hear. And I'm really thinking about like homesickness and nostalgia and in all of the deep ways, the deep ways that environmental racism literally creates these instances of sickness in the home. 
there was another concept that I really learned from you. And it was this idea of temporal reparations. Can you begin to just help us explore this landscape of what time in relationship to reparations could look like? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of temporal reparations is really you know, in some ways, it's it's this idea that Maxine Waters so beautifully named, which is, right, reclaiming our time. It's like no less than that. And so, right, I think it exists quite beautifully alongside of these ideas that are developing around, you know, reparations in terms of very specific types of reparations. Obviously, the idea of reparations is, is what very well developed, but in terms of things like spatial reparations, which... I'll give this definition by the National African-American Reparations Commission, which is that spatial reparations are a restorative and reparative geography of socioeconomic and political opportunity, particularly for those displaced and dispossessed by American slavery and their descendants. And so that idea of spatial reparations and temporal reparations, right, can exist alongside of that about all of the very, very specific ways, right, that we've been harmed by time, that time is uneven for Black communities, that we suffer and experience time poverty in very specific ways. So I gave a couple of examples, but can give plenty more, right, of just people, for example, who are facing eviction and the the sort of ways in which time's out of whack in the eviction system for someone who goes into a court and, you know, in 21 days later can be losing their home, can be kicked out of their home. And then all of the different choice points that go into that decision to evict someone from their home, right? So what does that timeline look like? So that's a very specific way that time inequities show up, but there's lots of other examples that many people have short, sort of given and developed over time. Also want to give this definition of grief reparations that Joy Kemet shared that I think really, really speaks to this as well. So Joy Tabernacle defines grief reparations as giving space, time, resources, funding for Black people to collectively and somatically process traumatic experiences and death, regardless of when these events occurred. And so I think that's also, you know, a, a form of temporal reparations when we're talking about what Joy Tabernacle defines as, as grief reparations, right? This, this restoration, this acknowledgement of how time has been used to oppress Black communities in particular, and making specific repairs to that, giving specific forms of repair to that. And so what does that mean practically? There's lots of different ways that we can think about what temporal reparations look like to address very specific harms, right? And these aren't abstract harms. We can look at very specific harms. So another example would be Jim Crow era or, or sundown towns, right? Very specific places that Black people were excluded from by death, by violence, you know, places where they had signs up where they said, if you're not out by sundown, you're going to die inward, you know, so just these very specific forms of temporal harm, temporal disrepair, temporal ex exclusion, temporal oppression that has consistently locked us off out of our futures and cut us off in time, finding ways to repair that and to, and to make redress for those things. Welcome back as we continue our conversation with Rashida Phillips, Director of Housing at PolicyLink. Yes, taking back 
our time. Thank you, Rashida. Thank you for the two broader definitions, thinking about grief reparations and Joy Kimmett. And so, yeah, those, those definitions were so useful. And, and also it's just such a unique lens to the way that we think about reparations. Cause it's, it's usually just for like slavery, but you're really asking like, how do we give black people their time back? And that's so powerful. As the director of housing at Policy Link, might you share some of the most reparative housing policies or innovations that you have come across in your career? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of models and innovations out there. And the things that a lot of them have in common is that they enable community control of housing and land and that they don't treat housing or land as a commodity. And so that's going to be models like community land trusts, models like land back and land restitution movements, land tax, returning land to indigenous stewardship, co-op models, models that are just not the traditional way, atomized way of thinking about housing, thinking about land, thinking about ownership, and thinking about control as something that belongs to one person or one family and that passes down in this time machine that only, you know, one family can get into at a time, right? And so models that really expand that and that call on, again, to call back to or refer back to indigenous and Afro-diasporan practices around land stewardship and communication and relationship to the land and to home. And so there's lots of models out there. And some of them are like incorporating culture, incorporating community, thinking about things like the commons, right? That just, again, expands it from this home as domicile, home as your castle, you know, a very white European westernized way of thinking about land and home to, again, try to tie it back to what existed before and what has been existing in communities outside of the gaze and the and the eye of you know the white gaze and and white supremacy and so um, a lot of these kinds of models don't have the policies or legal frameworks to really support them in a way that they need to be part of my work at least at policy link is how do we create those kinds of frameworks how do we shift the market to support or to even try to take these kinds of models off the market, right? So that it creates permanent opportunities that will continue to pass down through communities. And so a lot of the things that are needed to support these movements don't quite exist yet or are emerging areas, right? But in some ways, when you create a policy or a right or something, right, it it puts it under a legal framework that constrains it in some ways, right? And so this, this kind of balance between recognizing something as legal, as a model that, you know, the government can get behind or the market can get behind in some ways takes away that control because we just don't have the structures in our society to be able to accommodate these more expansive ways of thinking about land and and housing. So happy to have a radical lawyer on our team. (laughs) (laughs) There was much, much that you named around what does it look like to put these really radical institutions into legal frameworks that were meant to destroy them. And the amount of creativity that it takes, the amount of pushback and fight that it takes. I was really feeling that. And I was also really imagining 
you and the multifaceted work that you do both simultaneously pushing towards that beloved future and the really practical, tactile and technical ways that you work on a daily basis to deconstruct some of these structures so that the ones that we're dreaming about can, can take root. So this is one of my favorite sections in the podcast. And here we actually travel to the beloved future. And I had the opportunity to interview you from a place of being situated in the space where all of the work and all of the the things that we have been fighting for have come to pass. And so do you consent to being interviewed from the future? I do. I do. Thank (laughs) you for asking. Yes. So will you walk with us through the landscape of an Afro future where the goals of abolition and housing have been met? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Walking with you. We are walking. We are walking. And Rashida, what's surrounding us right now? So surrounding us is lots of green, lots of green, lush trees, very tall, lots of different flowers. There's a lot of voices. I'm hearing children. I'm hearing elders. I'm hearing a lot of sounds. I'm hearing music. Yes. And, and thinking about the future of housing, where are people living? What's living like? So people are living together. There are shared models. There are, we're sharing the land. We're communing. The land is not just something that structures sit on, but it's living. It's, we're in relationship to it. We're listening to it. We're not extracting. We're living together in harmony, understanding that the environment is alive just as much as we're alive. And we're figuring out ways to live in harmony with it. And we don't have a perfect. The future is not perfect. I don't believe in utopias. I believe in shared agreements, shared models and codes for living that we all agree on and strive towards. And so what the land looks like, you know, I don't quite have the picture yet. It's specifically right because there is no specific picture because it's the imagination of many in terms of what this is looking like and what our our housing models look like. But again, we're in relationship and it looks very shared. It looks very co-determined, co-created and co-imagined. Thank you. And sitting here and thinking about how our agreements about land have changed over time, sitting here nestled in our beloved future, what are some of the agreements that we have now that we did not have in the past? Yeah, so we have some agreements around understanding and respecting temporalities. So understanding our shared temporalities, understanding our personal temporalities, and then where those two come together and how those two can coexist with each other. In our agreements, right, we understand that tension is important and that consensus is challenging and that it's not necessary across all cases. And so our our shared agreements, right, take time. They have taken a lot of patience to come together. They have developed over time. They have developed with the been developed with the input of youth, of elders, of everything in between. They're not just the ideas or vision of one person or even one body of person, but somehow we found a way to layer temporality such that everyone's input has been considered and processed and somehow involved in, in the creation of the agreements. 
So yeah, I think that's, that's what it looks like. And I think it's a model that some communities hold, but it's a model that has been scaled up that all communities can practice and, and work through that kind of a process. And some of these agreements, right, are very localized. You know, the, the future is not a universalized, globalized thing. It respects the differences that some communities hold and that, you know, some communities, right, if they're near the sea, they may have different kinds of agreements or approaches or or ways that they work. Or if they live in a desert, they may have different approaches or ways that they work. But the things that are shared amongst us is a commitment to a process and to a way of being and respecting temporality versus specific mandates or specific practices or policies that everybody has to globalize in some way. So that's kind of what I see. Hmm. What kinds of resources, skills, or organizations did it take to have us create a radically new understanding of who is human and what a right is when it comes to housing? I think we have taken more lessons and understandings from what our ancestors and the people before us who survived the most harsh conditions possible and still were able to exist, to thrive, to create communities, to create whole towns. I think we have leaned in on that, right? And have understood that they already had a lot of the answers. And we have designed our communities in a way that pulls on and leans on and uproots that that information that for many of us is missing or is hidden. And so I think we're starting to come together to have those conversations. You know, again, abolitionist frameworks, other kinds of frameworks that we don't typically talk about when we're talking about designing and modeling our communities but that we are having these conversations, right, within our communities, and we are building and innovating and have innovated these frameworks in previous lifetimes. And so pulling in those lessons in the future, we have done more than just talked about it, but we have actually utilized that to design our communities, have drawn on those lessons, have drawn on the lessons of um, speculation of Octavia Butler and of Gloria Naylor in terms of how we can think about time, how we can think about land, how we can think about the future, how we can think about shared agreements, how we can think about rebuilding communities in the face of destruction and what looks like dystopia that we're currently in our present reality living in is not is not at all a fiction. And so if we can survive it and we have survived many dystopias before as as black folks and as folks of color, indigenous folks, we'll survive them again, but we have to like unbury these lessons that are there that our ancestors have and we have to figure out ways to communicate them to each other in ways that gives us cover because often, right, when we do put our stuff out there and start planning, that's when we're even more targeted than we already are. And so figuring out ways to recreate these kind of networks of sharing information that is undercover, but that allows us to build, allows us to, right. And I think, and and which is why I love quantum physics, because it offers us a language and some constructs for how we can do that, how particles communicate across time without being in anywhere near each other. They can be across the world and, and share information. I was having this conversation a couple of weeks ago about how our ancestors were able to do that as enslaved folks, like how the fuck were they able to plan, talk, communicate, get it to get, you know, right? Like what were the things that they used that they looked at, that they incorporated, that they 
divine to be able to plan on this these mass scales to be able to escape. So taking those lessons and figuring out and, and recreating those networks, those neural networks, those bodily, you know, and this is stuff, you know, too, like plant networks, however we need to talk and, and communicate to start to plan that, that we have figured out that language and that technology and we're using that in the future. I feel so inspired. <laughs> and I want to mention that Rashida really does love quantum physics. She was recently awarded the Collide Residency Award at CERN. So shout out to you and continuing to merge all these different realities in ways of communicating. And so now we're going to walk back to our beloved past slash present slash future. And I want to, to thank you for walking with us in the beloved future, Rashida. And so for our final questions, we really want to think about ways and movements towards making repair. Like how can we, as a community of reparationists, how can we act on behalf of housing abolition and towards creating that solid ground for Black people to build their worlds upon? Yeah, I think what I would say, and this is a hard question to answer, but I think what I would say as a baseline is that you have to consider the ways that you can make it a daily practice. So often, right, when we think about things like reparations, it feels so big. It feels so huge. There's so much, you know, to put under this umbrella of repair and what needs to be repaired that it feels daunting. I can imagine. I mean, I know it feels daunting for me to even think about where to start. And so thinking about the everyday, the practical, the ways in your daily life, you know, because it starts with you, it starts at home, as with all things, right? If we if we don't start at home, we're not going to be able to do it out in the world, or if we're doing it in the world and not at home, it's very inauthentic, right? And it's disconnected. And so I encourage folks to just figure out what it means for you in your everyday life to engage in this practice. What does it look like in a daily practice? What does it look like for you? You know, there's this saying that they had on Twitter, like abolish the cop in your mind. Like, what does that look like? Right. Like in having to think about what the cop in your mind looks like, like right on an everyday basis. Like, how do I in my own privileged ways as a as a black person who definitely right suffers from oppression and racism and all those things. Right. But I have certain privileges. And so where do I understand where my privileges are? How do I give those privileges up or back? Or how do I spend that privilege when I'm with other people who may not have those privileges? If I can do that, right? Like other people can do that in their in an everyday way around, especially people who are privileged with whiteness, <laughs> you know, finding ways in their everyday life to practice reparations, practice abolition, because it absolutely starts at home. It starts with your own values. And it's not even like this thing of like, educate yourself. Like it's beyond that. Like at this point, we beyond, you know, like you can educate yourself, do that on your own time. Like, no, you have to figure out how you put it into action and into practice. Like we're on an accelerated timeline. This is the timeline. White folks construct it. Like, come on, you have to figure it out. <laughs> Post haste, like it's it's beyond. So just thinking about that and and some of the ways, you know, that folks are thinking about this in, in the everyday is like mutual aid communities, right? Like that's a localized way of practicing and giving back. Also understanding for yourself internally, right? Like 
do you need to have this work acknowledged in some way? And that's that's the thing that a lot of people also run into. Like they need to be acknowledged, they need to be honored, or they need to someone to see that they're doing it. Like, no, it's not anybody's business that you're doing. You need to just do it, right? And so, like all these different things, again, how we put it into daily practice, I think is going to be really important because it's the daily stuff that's going to build into the bigger and bigger. And it's also going to help to shift the values that are needed, right? Because the actions are one thing, but it's also our underlying values, our constructs, our mental models that need to be uprooted and shifted. And so how do we also question that in a way that again, builds towards the bigger. So we have to shift those underlying values. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask this question differently. People listening to this podcast are ready to make reparations. Where should they send their resources? What projects matter to your heart? What are some of the most powerful ways to direct energy in this moment? And in what ways can we direct energy to you? And in what ways can the work of Black quantum futurism be supported? That's such an interesting question that I don't get asked often. I would say the things that matter most to me when people are thinking about making reparations is what's happening locally, how you're building relationships with people in your local community that will tell you where you need to spend your money and where you need to be making reparations. I think it's different for every community. And it's only when you're in relationship with folks, right? Like if you're not in relationship with folks, right? Send your money to wherever, but it's only when you're in relationship with folks and you understand what they need and they tell you what they need and where to direct it, that you're going to have impact, in my opinion. So that's what I would say. I I would want to see everyone building those relationships on the ground with local folks, the people who are most impacted, who will tell you where is the best way to funnel your support and, and your reparations. I would say for the work of Black quantum futurism, I don't know. That's such a hard question. Yeah, just follow us. I think part of what feels supportive to me is acknowledgement at this point, right? Making sure that we don't get erased and that we are cited feels really important. I think we are at a place where we have material resources And our work is always about how can we give those material resources to others who need it more, who need it the most. And so I would say for folks, if you are thinking about reaching out to us, collaborating us, working with us, know that right before you approach us, that that is important to us. And that when we are working with folks in communities, we prioritize that community and we're going to work to build resources in that community. And so that's that's what it's all about. I'm curious if there is anything else that you would like to leave in the hearts and the imaginations of uh, the people listening to this podcast today? I'm just really excited to be having this conversation and to see, yeah, see how the movement is expanding and how it's shifting and shaping itself in, in different communities, but towards a larger sort of translocal conversation and strategy. So I'm really excited and I'm happy to be part of this and hope that we can continue this conversation in other forms. Thank you, Rashida. I just want to acknowledge that a lot of my work as a futurist has been directly inspired by Kamei and yourself and this podcast largely structure and its heart is an ode to you and your work. And so I just wanted to give you so much thanks for the work that you have done, the work that you are doing, the work that you will continue to do and the way that you work us into being 
more beautiful and more powerful manifestations of ourselves. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for your work, Asia. Brilliant and also extremely inspiring. And I am so appreciative and grateful that we're in community together and we're in this work together. Word. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This episode with Rashida Phillips, Director of Housing at PolicyLink, was conducted by Asia Dorsey and produced by Lottie Lee Dula for reparationsforslavery.com. Reparative contributions could be made at www.policylink.org. You've been listening to Healing Black Futures, a podcast envisioning Black liberation and healing through economic justice. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com. I'm your host, Asia Dorsey.